Lord, thank you for this time again of worship. It is precious, God. Every Lord's Day, so grateful to be here. Grateful for the privilege of serving up your word. You know what our souls need, um, when we need it. And uh, thank you for all the precious people that you've brought here today to listen, to take heed to what our dear Lord and Savior Jesus is saying. And for anyone who's listening on live stream, God, I pray that your word would go out and accomplish its purpose and you would be glorified through this preaching time, through this listening time. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning after a break last week for our Mother's Day sermon. And as an FYI, uh, prior to last Sunday, I did consider just continuing in our study of Mark instead of doing a special sermon for Mother's Day. But my decision was quickly made for me when I saw what the upcoming text was. And uh, as you see the title of the sermon, (laughs) Um, so that would have been fine, but it was Mother's Day, so um, we chose to to go a different route. So um, I want to just read the text right now. So if you are able to stand, let us read Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. That'll be our passage for this morning. Mark 9, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Please be seated. As you can see, the title of our sermon today is Deal With Your Sin Now. And Jesus is exhorting us to deal drastically with our sins. And he includes warnings about the reality of hell. And there's an insert in your bulletin if you're wanting to take notes. And we'll fill out that outline um, as we go along. But I want to start with uh, uh, just a a quote um, from Dr. Clint Archer, who wrote a book called A Visitor's Guide to Hell. And um, he, he kind of describes these two men uh, named Stanley Prainmath, Prainmath and Brian Clark. They were two survivors of the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. They, they made their way down the South Tower. Okay, that was the second building that was struck. And it was from the 81st floor where Prainmath actually helped Clark escape 
because he was trapped in an office there. And so, um, so to quote the book, after September 11th, Stanley Premnath was interviewed about what happened that day. A fascinating detail was that he and Brian Clark had felt no sense of urgency about their escape. They were taking their sweet time with the tiring descent, 80-something floors. They took a brief break at the 44th floor to talk with someone, helping an injured person. When they got to the 37th floor, they took another rest. Both of them popped into offices and made personal phone calls to family, assuring them that they were not in any danger. Clark then called 911 and for three minutes calmly explained what they had experienced and where the emergency workers should go. When they finally exited the building, rescue workers were yelling at them to run for their lives. Premnath remarked to Clark that the building might collapse, but Clark assured him that that was impossible because of how solid the construction was. While he was still uttering that sentence, the South Tower collapsed right in front of them, a mere five minutes after they left the building. And Archer writes, Many people who are familiar with the Bible have a vague sense that heaven and hell must be real. But some people are perilously unaware of the urgency with which they should be considering these issues. End quote. Our Lord Jesus would not have his disciples be in such ignorant peril, unaware of the dangers of hell. He loved them and us too much to not exhort, to not admonish, to not tell the truth about this reality. As we've been seeing in Mark chapter 9, and as we'll see in the next couple chapters, Jesus is continuing his private ministry to the Twelve, teaching them in a number of critically important lessons as his road to the cross has embarked just months away now. Our sermon theme again is that Jesus exhorts the Twelve to deal drastically with their sins, and he includes some stark words about the realities of hell, and we're relating that to us as his disciples today. He starts off this lesson with a stern warning. That's your first point there. A stern warning. And the warning is, don't be jeopardizing other believers. Don't be jeopardizing other believers. Verse 42 again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. Okay? So, whoever and these little ones. It's important for us to understand who that is. Okay? Whoever doesn't mean just anyone. Hey, Jesus is specifically talking to believers about other believers. Remember what he just said in the previous verse, verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Hey, that whoever in verse 41 refers to a Christian believer. Hey, one who says, who Jesus says will not lose his reward as he acts in kindness towards other believers. Hey, there's heavenly reward to be had for Christians who risk treating other believers kindly, even just a cup of water, okay, due to the fact that they are believers too. So verse 42 gives contrast to that. He's telling the twelve, whoever among you believers who causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. Okay, so those little ones are ones who believe in him. Matthew 18, verse 6, the parallel passage says, who believes in me. Clearly Jesus is not talking about physical little children here or toddlers like the one he has in front of him. He's referring to believers, children of God. And perhaps, perhaps he's thinking of weak or obscure or young in the faith believers. 
Whether younger or older, though, his strict warning here is to not cause fellow Christians to stumble. And the Greek verb there, skandalizo, basically means to ensnare, and to lure into sin, to lead astray. It's to cause others to be tripped by temptation and fall. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 11.29. He asks, Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And what a, what a shepherd Paul is. We as Christians are not to cause our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are younger, but to all, to be tempted to sin, to lead them astray. We're not to jeopardize the spiritual walks and progress and lives of fellow Christians. And Jesus says not even one of these. All believers are precious to our Lord. So what are some ways that we can cause other Christians to stumble, to sin? And I just want to offer two primary ways, two main ways that we might do this. Number one is by direct temptation. By direct temptation. Enticing a fellow believer to break God's commands. And that, that could be specific or general. Specific sins, leading others to lie for some, in some way or by your own lying or leading others to cheat or steal hey, by gossiping. Hey, that's a temptation to cause others to stumble if you gossip. Hey, by committing sexual sins or going along with sexual immorality. Hey, those are some very specific things under direct temptation. General sins, by inducing believers to love the world, hey, sinful things of the world, hey, or, or somehow drawing them to ungodly activities and enterprises. Yeah, that's a general way that we can directly tempt other Christians to stumble. The second main way is by bad example. By bad example. Setting an ungodly example which causes other Christians to sin. And this could be, again, sins of commission and sins of omission, right? But doing things, okay, even in Christian liberty, which will lead other younger, weaker, okay, other brothers and sisters to stumble. Listen to Romans 14, verse 13 and 21. Romans 14, verses 13 and 21. Paul writing again. He says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. And so the application question is, how are we living? How is our example as husbands, fathers, as wives, mothers, as brothers, sisters, as spiritual brothers and sisters, as church family? How are we living? With friends who are Christians? Are the things that we do, our relationships with others, our conversations, what we watch, what we listen to, how we live, is any of it a direct Hey, or, or, or even indirect temptation to those around us. Hey, are we setting a bad or ungodly example for others in the way that we live? And this is, this is quite stern. It's, it's quite a serious issue because our Lord says it would be better to suffer a truly horrific death than to cause a fellow believer to stumble or sin like that. Hey, that heavy millstone that Jesus mentions there. Hey, a huge stone used for grinding grain. 
It could weigh up to a couple thousand pounds. It's so heavy that it took a beast of burden to turn it. So suppose you and another person or a number of people went out to the ocean, went out to sea on a boat, and just got in the boat, and uh, all you've got with you is a huge, heavy millstone. And this, this thing's got a, a, a hole in the, in the middle of it, uh, so a rope can go through. So you have a rope as well, right? And you're out there with these number of people, and it must be a pretty sizable boat because it's got to carry that millstone. And you're going miles out to sea, out to the ocean, and you know your, your destination is to have that, that millstone hung around your neck and pushed overboard into the sea. And so Jesus is saying it would be better for that to happen to you than for you to cause a brother or sister in Christ to sin. And this is what I mean when I say it's a, it's a, it's a serious, sobering issue, according to our Lord. Church family, we are called to love one another to this extent. And I think we, we take that command to love one another a little bit lightly sometimes. Okay, because it means doing all that we can by the power of the Holy Spirit to truly love each other as Christians. And part of that means doing everything and anything we can to avoid making others stumble. Right? So John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Okay, that's what was new about it. Okay, Jesus' example of love for us, that you also love one another. Okay, he loved us completely selflessly, always sacrificially for the highest good of those he loved. So to turn to the Apostle Paul again, okay, and he's talking about food sacrificed to idols. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 and 11 through 13. Okay, just listen to this. He says, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Yeah, I think that was 1 Corinthians 8. Sorry, I have a typo in my notes here. But it's 1 Corinthians 8. Okay, that was Paul's resolve. Okay, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Just as a personal application, dear church, um, and this is not required of all Christians or even all pastors, but my choice and conviction as a pastor is to abstain from drinking any alcohol. Okay, no wine, no beer, no alcoholic beverage whatsoever. Okay, and, and that is, this, the heart behind this is to not want to cause a weaker brother or anyone, any Christian, younger Christian, um, immature Christian, uh, to be able to say, hey, pastor, pastor has a glass of wine every once in a while and, you know, he drinks a beer on a hot afternoon. And so to, to cause someone to potentially stumble and sin, knowing just the, the dangers of, of, of alcohol and everything like that, I, I've chosen not to do that. 
And so, um, again, this is not a, a requirement, uh, and yet, this is the heart behind that. So, the flip side is Romans 15. Romans 15, verses 1 to 3, says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. So Jesus' stern warning is don't be jeopardizing the spiritual life of dear brothers and sisters in Christ. It matters a lot to him. Okay, so the second thing is this. Second point is sharp exhortations. Sharp exhortations. Be killing your sin as believers in Christ. Be killing your sin as believers in Christ. That's the sharp exhortation. And I'm not going to read uh, verses 43 to 48 again, but that's our, um, that's the, the scope of the verses there. And there's a shift in that first verse from Jesus warning about ensnaring others to that of allowing oneself to be ensnared, right? In verse 43, he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, and if your foot causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble. So the Lord uses those three memorable exhortations to bring this to our attention. And he includes these warnings about hell. And let me say that they're meant primarily as motivators to serious discipleship and obedience. Okay, rather than as a, a threat or even warning to unbelievers. And he's speaking to the to believers here, right? So, um, yeah, he's speaking to the twelve, his disciples, private teaching. And when you think about it, it's like, wow, Judas, Judas really should have been listening, right? It's apparent that he was not dealing with his sin, whether of greed or avarice or pride or covetousness or covering things up or deception. Judas didn't deal with his sin. He didn't root it out. Even as one of the privileged twelve. And how great was his betrayal. And how great was his fall. Death by suicide. And hanging himself from a tree where eventually he, as Acts 1.18 says, fell headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Jesus says, deal with your sin. Your hands, your feet, your eyes. Those separate mentions of the hand, foot, and eye simply points to the fact that dangers and temptations come to us from different directions. These are three representative variety of ways that God-given human functions and abilities can be perverted and become instruments of sin and Satan. What is Jesus' remedy here to your, your hands doing sinful deeds? Cut it off. He says the same thing about your feet. Cut it off. Your eyes, if they're causing you to sin in some way, okay, pluck it out and throw it away. The tense, aorist imperative, these verbs, they, they demand prompt, urgent, decisive action. They do it and do it now. Obviously, those, those physical actions are, are not meant literally. Otherwise, all of us here who are Christians might be shaking each other's left hands and 
hopping around on one foot, perhaps looking like pirates with a patch over our eyes. Hey, but Jesus knows that cutting off a hand or foot or taking out an eye is not going to deal with the sin in the heart that needs to be cut out, and which caused the members to act sinfully. So that's not the ultimate solution to dealing with sin. But what Jesus is saying here with these sharp exhortations that you must take extreme, drastic, even radical measures to kill your sin. You need to perform urgent spiritual surgery. Show no mercy to your sins. It's like Samuel. Remember 1 Samuel 15? Hacking Agag to pieces. Right? Saul didn't deal with it. Saul left the Amalekites. Saul left some of the spoil. God told him to wipe them all out. So Samuel, the old prophet, hacks the evil king Agag to pieces. As a surgeon would not hesitate to cut off a hand or a foot infected with gangrene to save a life, evil and destructive practices must also be cut off. And don't, be, don't be gentle with your sins, folks. It's one of those things that we're, we're allowed to be merciless about. Hey, ruthless. Don't coddle them. Don't treat them lightly. Sin is not your pet. There's a story of a guy named Gary Richmond, who was a former zookeeper. He was explaining that raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months old. After, after that, they, they often attack their owners. Gary, so this friend, Gary Richmond, had a friend named Julie who owned a pet raccoon. Since a 30-pound raccoon can equal a 100-pound dog in a fight, he felt compelled to warn her of the coming change. Oh, it'll be different for me, she replied with a smile. Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. A bandit was released into the wild. Sin often comes in this adorable guise, um, seemingly pleasant, seemingly harmless. As we coddle it, as we play with it, it's easy to say, it'll, get, it'll be different with me. But, but the results are predictable. Look, if, if Jesus had to give these sharp exhortations to his disciples, a men who would be used by God like a year later, to preach the gospel and literally change the world, don't all of us here need to take heed of this today? There's nothing, nothing, not even things so precious like our hands, our feet, our eyes, not even these should stand in the way of entering eternal life. Our Lord is pointing to the inestimable worth of the kingdom of God, which surpasses things of of priceless value, like we can't, put a price on our, our sight and our hands and our feet, right? So those metaphors of ha- eyes, hands, and feet, they're all inclusive of, of what we view, what we do, and where we go. As important as those are to us, okay, whatever else claims our ultimate allegiance, whatever else we prize so much, these things, dear folks, are not life. Okay, the kingdom of God is life eternal. And nothing in this earthly life should be allowed to prevent one from entering the kingdom. Jesus says it's much better to enter into heaven maimed or lame and half-blind than to go into hell. The choice is literally between God's kingdom and, quote, the fire that never goes out, heaven or hell.
good old J.C. Ryle, who I haven't quoted in a while, he wrote a book called Thoughts for Young Men. And it was addressed to young men in particular, but it's actually super helpful for everyone. Such wise words from the Puritan bishop. He writes, quote, There are two ways of coming down from the top of a church steeple. One is to jump down, and the other is to come down by the steps, but both will lead you to the bottom. So also there are two ways of going to hell. One is to walk into it with your eyes open, and few people do that. The other is to go down by the steps of little sins, and that way, I fear, is only too common. Put up with a few little sins, and you will soon want a few more. Even a heathen, unbeliever, would say, Whoever was content with only one sin? And then your course will be regularly worse and worse every year. Well did Jeremy Taylor, a fellow minister in the Church of England, describe the progress of sin in a man. He's quoting Jeremy Taylor here. First it startles him, then it becomes pleasing, then easy, then delightful, then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed. Then the man is impenitent, then obstinate, then resolves never to repent, and then he is damned. Young men, if you would not come to this, that damned end, recollect the rule I give to you this day. Resolve at once to break off every known sin. End quote. And again, he's addressing young men, but this goes for us all. Resolve at once, immediately, to break off, cut off every known sin. Jesus talked about that picture of how horrible it would be to cause another to stumble and as horrific as it would be to be hurled into the sea with a 2,000-pound millstone hung around your neck and drowning to your death, ending up in hell would be infinitely worse. That's the terrible alternative. Jesus is saying, make sure you deal drastically, radically with your sins so as not to fall into such a pattern where you're proven not to be his disciples and find yourself in hell. Okay? This is the clear word from our Lord to his disciples and to us. Hell, literally the Gehenna. It's the place where the unrighteous, unbelieving go immediately when they die. And it's a, that word Gehenna, it's a loose transliteration of Gehinnom, which is the Valley of Hinnom, a place located just south of Jerusalem. Back in the time of the kings, especially under the evil kings of Ahaz and Manasseh, Children, babies were, were burned to death as sacrifices to Moloch and to idols. Second Chronicles 28 and 33. The good king Josiah later declared that place to be unclean. Second Kings 23. And terrible threats were pronounced over it. Through the years, Gehenna became the place where the city's garbage was burned, a continually burning trash heap. So it became a picture of this never-ending pain of the unbelieving. As Jesus says, and the fire is not quenched. It's a fire that never ends. Literally, a fire that never is extinguished. Okay, the punishment for those who enter hell is never ending. It's everlasting. Matthew 25, verse 46. Also in Matthew 13, as Jesus speaks of the tares who look like wheat, okay, non-Christians who look like Christians, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, he says there, Matthew 13. And then they burn 
They burn with unquenchable fire. So so hell is a fiery place. It's a place where those who, who go will experience pain by fire, exposed to an open flame, burning alive, so to speak. He calls it again the unquenchable fire. It never goes out. There's no water, nothing to put it out. It's burning forever. In Revelation, we see that those who are in hell will end up in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, this is the eternal home for those who do not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so, verses 44 and 46, Jesus says, if that itself was not terrifying enough, and he also describes hell as a place where their worm does not die. And just quick footnote here, verses 44 and 46 is not found in the earlier manuscripts. Um, it was most likely added by a scribe uh, later. But it is found for certain on verse 48. And verse 48 is unquestionably authentic. It's the same words. Okay, the Lord's quoting from Isaiah 66:24, and he says, Where the wor- their worm does not die. Okay, the reality of hell is absolutely terrifying. It's a place of continuous suffering. Their worm never dies. Okay, this, as fires seem to be something external and outside, this seems to be something internal, something within, whether it's a physical, literal bug or, or metaphoric. Either way, there's something inside, something buggery that, that's inside of the inhabitants of hell. And so... Even though we can't be certain if it's a literal worm that he's talking about, maybe, maybe not, that's the picture. Okay, worms endlessly eating up your flesh. So can we even imagine being burned by an eternal flame and there's some sort of bug or worm is eating your flesh at the same time and this is happening for all eternity? And we could go on and, and talk about other descriptions of, of hell, but we're going to stay in our, our text this morning. Okay, so is Jesus saying all this to the twelve about eternal worms, unending fires of hell? Is he just exaggerating to make a point so that they don't forget? Or is hell an actual place with real, conscious, eternal suffering that contains all that he said? Okay, obviously, it's the latter. Listen to Revelation 14 and 19 and 20. It says, They will be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And it's like this continual burning of their bodies and souls, producing ascending smoke. It constantly goes up. So that they have no rest day or night. And this goes against the doctrine that, that some Christians and pastors teach and, and insist on of annihilationism, where everything's just, uh, or people are just destroyed and they cease to exist. Jesus knows of this place called hell because he's the one who created it. In John 1.3, all things came to being through him. Colossians 1.15, for by him all things were created. And so, these sharp, these stark exhortations and warnings about the realities of hell are for the purpose of motivation. The Bible and God and Jesus and his word, the Spirit, gives us many prescriptions, folks, for our sanctification. And this is one of them. Okay? He wants believers to deal urgently and radically with their sin and to do it, to do it now. Back to J.C. Ryle. Okay, these sage words about the dangers of having too much time in our hands and of 
and of what he calls worldly amusements. Listen to this. Quote, This is one great reason why idleness is so much to be avoided. It is not that doing nothing is of itself so positively wicked, but it's the opportunity it affords to evil thoughts and vain imaginations. It is the wide door it opens for Satan to throw in the seeds of bad things. It is this which is mainly to be feared. If David had not given occasion to the devil by idling on his housetop at Jerusalem, he would probably never have seen Bathsheba nor murdered Uriah. This, too, is one great reason why worldly amusements are so objectionable. It may be difficult in some instances to show that they are in themselves positively unbiblical and wrong, but there is little difficulty in showing that the tendency of almost all of them is most injurious to the soul. They sow the seeds of an earthly and sensual frame of mind. He's talking about worldly amusements, entertainment. They war against the life of faith. They promote an unhealthy and unnatural craving after excitement. They minister to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 1 John 2. They dim the view of heaven and eternity and give a false color to the things of time. They indispose the heart for private prayer, scripture reading, and calm communion with God. End quote. I think that those are very helpful and wise words to those of us who get distracted by these things that are out there in the world. Again, just social media and Internet and just all these forms of entertainment, okay, which is completely potentially dissipation. And then idleness. Okay, some people have too much time on their hands. And, and just it's, it's, it's the devil's time. And so we need to take heed to Jesus' stark exhortations here, these sharp and severe warnings about the realities of hell, that he's, he's compelling us and exhorting us to be killing our sin and urgently. So after the first stern warning, okay, don't jeopardize other believers, and these sharp exhortings, Okay, put your sins to death now. The third thing is this, third point, sound reasoning. Sound reasoning. Verses 49 and 50. And basically, I tried to sum it up there by saying, be a purifying and preserving influence. Be a purifying and preserving influence. This is actually one of the more difficult couple verses to interpret in Mark's gospel, I'll have you know. And I don't want us to lose focus, though, on the gist of the passage as a whole. So I'm just going to try to summarize by saying um, we want to understand this in its context. So I think the everyone here seems to refer to believers once again. Okay, Everyone, that is everyone who believes in Jesus. So all believers, Jesus says, will be salted with fire, which means that all believers will experience some testing, some seasoning, if you will. Salted with fire. And the fire that he's talking about here is not fires of perdition, which he was just talking about as far as hell goes, but he's talking about fire here as in purification. And normally, we might think that the means by which believers are purified is by way of trials, right? That's kind of the automatically the first thing that comes to my mind. Like by fiery trials, which is mentioned in Peter and James and elsewhere. Okay, but I think here it might refer more to the purifying effect of the Holy Spirit working through His Word. Okay, the purifying effect of the Holy Spirit 
working through the word. And this is the way that believers are sanctified by God's truth, right? By obeying Jesus' wonderful commands and words, and even by the warnings and exhortings that he's already given in this passage. The Spirit works by his word to have a burning, purifying effect on the believer's life. And it's a help to him or her deal with and kill sin. So Jesus says in verse 50, salt is good. And of course, especially in ancient Near Eastern times, salt is very good because it preserves food. There's no refrigerators, no freezers back then. It also imparts flavor to food, which is another good thing. Then he says, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? In other words, if the salt loses its flavor or loses its saltiness, there's no bringing it back and it becomes useless. Elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus says, good for nothing. Metaphorically, if believers are being sanctified and dealing seriously with their sins and temptations, then salt is good. They will retain their saltiness. They'll maintain the characteristic of, of preservation, of preserving. So that idea of preservation means combating deterioration or combating corruption. So when you think about sin, This is what it is to retain, maintain saltiness. Fire purifies and salt preserves. So he says, have salt in yourselves. That is, keep those qualities that are pure and that have a preserving influence on fellow believers and on the world. To have salt in or within oneself basically means to to be the salt of the earth. Be genuine. Be the real thing. Pure doesn't mean perfect. But be the kind of Christian that preserves and enhances the community and people around you. Matthew 5.13 is where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you Christians, you are the salt of the earth. And then later Paul says in Colossians 4 verse 5, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you you should respond to each person. Jesus adds at the end there, that having this salt in ourselves results in believers being at peace with one another. I think that's a a result thing there. Being unified and having peace with fellow Christians is part of the saltiness that we don't want to lose. Okay, I I tried to sum that up as quickly and and clearly as I could, but that's where I land as far as what that means. So deal with your sin now, dear church. We've been exhorted. The Lord is exhorting the twelve. He's exhorting us to deal drastically with our sins. And, wow, our Lord Jesus, he cares for us to such an extent extent that he gives it to us straight. Right? In the perfect balance of grace and truth, he gives a stern warning to us about not causing other believers to sin. Hey, don't do that. Think about it this week. How are you living? Your example temptations to others. Think about that. And he's given pointed, sharp exhortations for us not to play around with our own sin, things that cause us to stumble. Be ruthless in killing it. And he tells us lovingly about the reality and dread of hell to motivate us to urgent action. And then he reasons soundly, encouraging us to be purified in our walks that we might be a purifying and preserving influence on others. And let me say this. Hey, none of that 
none of that would be possible if Jesus didn't come on that rescue mission 2,000 years ago. It would be impossible for us to attempt any of this, no matter how scared we are of hell. And no matter how horrified we are about thinking that we might be thrown over the ocean with a millstone around our neck. Okay? I'm going to quote Clint Archer one more time here as we start to wrap up. Quote, on March 23, 2003, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, an American military convoy took a wrong turn and drove into an enemy ambush. Unable to adequately defend themselves, most of the unit was slaughtered. One unconscious 19-year-old soldier was taken prisoner in an Iraqi hospital, ominously named Saddam Hospital. The soldier's name was PFC Jessica Lynch. This teenage girl was the first female American soldier ever to be taken as a prisoner of war. For six days, Lynch lay completely incapacitated with a broken thigh bone, broken arm, and dislocated ankle. In her condition, there was no chance of escape. A local doctor tried to help her by smuggling her to a U.S. checkpoint, but the guards at the checkpoint shot at the unidentified vehicle, preventing the delivery. Lynch was trapped behind enemy lines. But her government was not idle. On April 1st, an elite joint rescue squad consisting of Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and other special forces descended dramatically on Saddam Hospital, alighting from helicopters. Taking no chances, they subdued every potential threat, including innocent doctors, nurses, and even other civilian patients. Not realizing this massive onslaught was all being staged on her behalf, Jessica was fearful that the rescuers would leave her there, or worse, inadvertently shoot her. As the rescuers burst into Jessica's hospital room, she cried out urgently, I am an American soldier too. The reassuring reply, reassuring reply was, we know, and we're here for you. And a small cloth patch was pressed into her hand. It was an American flag. She was immediately whisked away by helicopter, and the rescue operation was not considered complete until she was delivered safely back to her family on American soil. And he perhaps concludes by saying this, The Bible describes all humans as captives of sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is our rescuer. God secured salvation for anyone who repents and believes, He did this by sending his son to live the perfect life on our behalf and die the death that we deserve. We are all trapped behind enemy lines and doomed to an unthinkable end. But for anyone who is in Christ's spiritual kingdom, our rescue is guaranteed. End quote. As those who have been rescued and forgiven and redeemed, we now have the power to live as Jesus tells us to live. We can listen to him. And we can walk by the Spirit. We can live in obedience. We can overcome our sins. And not perfectly, but as a pattern. Romans 6, which was read earlier. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how should we live as those alive to God in Christ. And last quote, we're going to end with this. J.C. Ryle again. He gives us some encouragement here. Listen, live as in the sight of God. This is what Abraham did. He walked before him. 
This is what Enoch did. He walked with him. This is what heaven itself will be. The eternal presence of God. Do nothing you would not like God to see. Say nothing you would not like God to hear. Write nothing you would not like God to read. Go to no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me, Internet. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like God, you would not like to have God say, what art thou doing, end quote. Let us take the loving word of our Savior to heart and deal severely and swiftly with our sins by his gospel grace and power. That's the word for us this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us straightforward warnings and exhortations and admonitions. And I pray, Lord, that it was as clear, it is as clear to us as it should have been and would have been to the 12 disciples. We're grateful for the wisdom and love of our Lord and Savior Jesus and for this precious time. I pray, God, it's been helpful for each of us, for our walks. Thank you for the power of your Spirit who lives in us and for the grace of the Gospel that we would be able to be transformed and continue to walk in faith and obedience to you. For Christ is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen.